0: Welcome back to Tradewinds, I'm Robin van Beerenbrug, your host, and my guest today is Ambassador Louise Blais, who was the former Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations here in New York, and most recently, the Consul General for Canada in the state of Georgia. So Louise, welcome to the show, and it's so good to see you again.
1: It's wonderful to be here with
0: you, Robin. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course, Louise. So we saw each other last. In Savannah, right, in Georgia. So I wanted to go back to, to sort of your you work there. But be, before that, how is life after the diplomatic service?
1: In a way, it's a big change. I've been a, a, a diplomat for close to 30 years and, and representing my country. But what I have found since I left is two things. One is I'm still able to support. Canadian trade and my new role so that's very satisfying and second I have more freedom to say what I want to say and 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 uh, (laughs) that's good the, the bureaucracy is can be wonderful it can it can couch you it can protect you but at the same time it can limit you and and so in my new role I feel that I'm able to be much more outspoken on social media and really push the agenda of international trade for Canada but as well the I'm very active on issues related to the to the U.N., and particularly now with the conflict in Europe.
0: Yeah, of course. And we'll talk about that because it's it's naturally interrelated. Although there's, you know, you have a fascinating career, but there's a, a big difference working as a, as a diplomat on a multilateral level within the U.N. context and here in New York Versus on a more bilateral basis, uh, especially when you were in in Georgia, very much boots on the ground, so to speak, and in being involved with, the, with with the private sector and 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 working with for for, for Canadian promoting Canadian trade. How how, how was that a, was it experience different? Because it does come back together to you, what you just said: the question of how do we solve the problems today that are trade related, they are conflict related, uh, where governments are involved. So, but from a personal, a professional perspective, sort of working at multilateral environment versus bilateral and focus more on, on business or so how how wh- wh- how was it experience for you differently
1: it was a, a very big learning curve and and really to be honest i when i was asked to go in and uh, support the campaign the canadian campaign for the security council i still had a year to go on my consul general job in in the southeast and uh, the president uh, trump had just been elected and and a lot of the cabinet ministers came from my territory. So I really honestly, I resisted because I felt here is, I know what I, I felt comfortable in this environment. I knew the players and then I was going to be catapulted into the UN and multilateralism. And we have diplomats who do this as, as, as a career. They really basically go yep. from one multilateral office to another wasn't my case. I'd focused on bilateral relations my entire career. So I have to honestly say I, I was, I was intimidated. And when you arrive at the UN, it is the Olympics of diplomacy. The world is there. Countries with whom you have more difficult, challenging relationships are there. You have to interact. The the, the complexities are just layers and layers and layers, not just from the rules and procedures perspective, but just developing just just a silly thing as this is just to know the first name of all 193 ambassadors so that because you encounter them on the and the deputies mm-hmm. and you know you have to be on top of your game all the time and you have to know not just what that country is doing in the multilateral context but what's the relationship the canada you canada polish relationship canada india relationship you know it's, so the it's a myriad of, of complexities and you yeah, add on top of that of course a campaign from the security council it was enormously challenging but and the hours were basically 24/7 the pace at the un now is almost inhuman because the 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 meetings have multiplied so they just keep adding new meetings but they don't take any other things away and so it's you really really have to take a deep breath and go all in and but it was a Fantastic experience, and then while I was there, one of the reasons why they thought it'd be a good choice is Canada was trying to bring in the private sector into the uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. You know, we realized that there's no way that the, the UN system on its own, or even aid money, is gonna is gonna get us to the trillions that we need to achieve the SDGs. And Canada was at the forefront of bringing the private sector inside the U.N., which was something that had really hadn't been done. You had the IMF, but that's not the private sector. And uh, so we we focused uh, a great deal on that in my time there. So there were definitely linkages. And of course, my knowledge of the United States and, and Mickey Ailey was governor when mm-hmm. at South Carolina when I was in the Southeast and now she was ambassador. Knowing how to deal with the Americans at the U.N. is also an asset, to be sure.
0: (laughs) That's very interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, there's of course this this notion, right? If the UN is very imperfect, but if it wouldn't exist, we would have to invent it. Uh, Do you you still agree with that?
1: I do. There are things I really do believe that we need to take a hard look. And there have been some changes done recently. There was a resolution that was uh, passed by consensus in the General Assembly. To ensure that any country using a veto would have would have to explain itself back in the General Assembly, which ultimately the General Assembly is the sovereign body of the UN. But over time, and it's not necessarily in the charter, but over time we let the Security Council run the show. And I think there's dissatisfaction, growing dissatisfaction with that. And I'm optimistic about some of some of the changes that could be afoot. But before I finish. This answer, I just want to add that there is one thing that the UN does extremely well it's the, the funds and programs and the agencies, the World Food Program, the refugees, UNICEF. Without us knowing, us, the donor countries, we really need to appreciate more the lives and the livelihoods that those organizations have made better over the past 75 years of the existence of the UN. So, a big shout out for the agencies
0: yeah no no that's that's important that you also mentioned that because when we look at the these are the agencies that are then on the ground when there's there's issues with with global warming whereas there's there's of course refugees because of conflict or we was just talking someone else earlier this morning about why people migrate right it's not just for a pure economic opportunity or conflict now it's also because there's a food insecurity and there's there's climate refugees. So to to maybe put to put then your your head on from when you were in the southeast, more focusing on on sort of the business community. From a, if if you look at what's going on in the, in the current global sort of trade environment, with there's of course conflict, but there's there's inflation is, is at very high levels, reaching double digits in, in in many places. And there's also this notion of a, a terrible food crisis upon us. What I mean, we know we came out of the pandemic, and then there's of course this conflict. And these things happening but it seems to be like a, a perfect storm so canada is is a bit of a i would say correct me if i'm wrong with this at least from the outset considered bit of a safe haven in this in this big storm but how would you with your experience like working with companies or working with government like how how can we address this tremendous uh, imbalance when we look at uh, trade, where you have so many people that will just be from, from basic goods. And it goes from the terrible situation in, in many places in, in, in Africa where there's simply no food available, or, but even to the U.S. where the Air Force has to fly an infant formula because the factory shuts down. So there seems to be, from a supply chain perspective, from so many different um, angles that uh, things start sort of uh, very confusing right now. So what, what do you make of what's what's happening uh, today in, in trade environments?
1: I think you're correct to say that we're facing, uh, unfortunately, a perfect storm of different geopolitical challenges that are are congregating and coming at the same time. And I think that's making that's making things extremely difficult. What I'm hearing from companies is a variety of threats. Some of them you've mentioned, some of them you haven't mentioned. Cybersecurity is a huge one now, and companies are, you know, admit themselves that they're ill-equipped. To fully ward off what could be devastating attacks on their system, which would further, you know, make it, you know, make their supply chain more complicated. We look at what happened with the pipeline in the, in the Northeast and Southeast last year as a perfect example. When when a, a necessity, a commodity that you cannot live without completely goes dry because of an accident, whether it's man-made or whether it's mm-hmm. it's it's natural. So we... The way I see it is two ways. First of all, we're at a point, an inflection point, I think, and where I don't think we can take on too many more of these destabilizing forces. I think we can deal with what we have now, but the war in Europe is, was really ill-timed, and you could argue that President Putin planned it that way, but the fact that now grain can't flow out of, of the, that region that used to feed basically most of Africa and, and regions in, in Southeast Asia. That's a big problem. And but I'm optimistic at the same time because I was just speaking yesterday with the Canadian, with the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, and she was saying that they have gone out of their way to Ukraine, despite being at war, to reopen some of these ports and to be able to to be able to ship uh, some of those commodities again. But she did mention if Odessa falls, then that's game. You know, everything is really borderline. We could probably muddle through some of these things that are happening. But at the same time, I don't think we can take on much more. You've got, And now you have more and more companies talking about reshoring, nearshoring, bringing, bringing supply chains back. And it's, it's a big change. I mean, we constructed the past 30 years. We globalized in every way. And now we're realizing, well, we took some things for granted in terms of some of the partners in which we decide to do business with, Chandra included. So yeah, this, we- this
0: this notion of reshoring mm-hmm. is of course, or nearshoring is, it has been on the agenda of many companies for for pure economic reasons for for, for a while to, to just make sure there's no disruption in supply chains for um, whether it's as workers falling sick because of COVID to just a lack of certain resources and a costing perspective, all all, all of that has changed as well, of course. And so talking about this, the near shoring, it's, I think it's a very interesting question, like how, because there's, of course, very strong trade ties between Canada and the United States, but how do you see the sort of the inter-American trade opportunity? And then I include the entire continents from, from the south of, you know, the, the tip of, of Argentina and Chile all the way up to uh, to, to in Canada, because I, I believe the inter-American, intra-American trade is, is, is I, I believe, around, around 50% of, of, of exports, which is... You know, a good ten basis points less than than in Asia, and twenty less than in in Europe, where it's about seventy percent. Sort of, well, how how do you see also historically why sort of there seems to be a disconnect between better and more trade within the Americas because it's a massive market, and, and and so why why is this so so difficult?
1: I welcome that question very much because it's something that I've been speaking a lot about with with Canadian and and American government officials on this issue of. The lens by which we have seen Central and Latin America, even the Caribbean, which has always been not as equal partners, and uh, our eyes went towards Europe, obviously, and towards Asia, uh, and and yet we have a lot of the solutions in our own in our own hemisphere, and uh, whether it's raw material, whether it's oil, whether it's 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 uh, it's grain, whether it's uh, critical minerals, we have. A lot of the answers but we we are facing instead of an um, embracing this as a solution moving forward i can tell you from the perspective of canada we're facing a lot of protectionist wins in the united states for some reason the republican party which used to be very pro-free trade is has a wing now that has gone very protectionist and yes canada is not the target of that per se it's it's other countries that they have in their in their lands, but but there's collateral damage. You know, when they passed by America legislation, and that was very much included in the in the big hard infrastructure bill that was passed last year. Well Canadian companies can no longer bid for some of those infrastructure infrastructure contracts, which will mean that the projects will be delayed. It will cost more because they just simply don't have the capacity to unroll all those Billions of dollars at the same time across the country, and Canada can help in this area. Canada has made the U.S. competitively, uh, competit- has made their competitive advantage better because of what we sell to the United States is not final products by and large. What we sell them is components that go right into their own manufacturing economy, and, and so they've relied on us. But it's unfortunately not recognized enough, and so you end up with with, with knee jerk policies that get passed or. You know, like the EV tax credit that we would have, would have excluded Canada. It didn't pass because Senator mentioned didn't support it and we dodged a bullet there. But that would have had not just an impact on Canada, but an impact on the United States because the automobile industry is very much integrated as a result of NAFTA and Kuzma. So, so we have, Canadians have to do a better job at telling that story south of the border. The United States is a superpower it gets can get distracted. It has a lot on its plate. and And so it's up to us, I think, to come to them with solutions and to just uh, keep re-emphasizing that we're stronger together continentally than we are if we go out and go. And you know you look at the immigration problem that they have, South as and their southern border, part of that could be solved by doing greater trade and investment in countries like Guatemala and and many others. And so and these countries are ready to 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 work. Colombia is another example, and they've got the labor force. And right now, it's China that's investing.
0: Yeah, and look, what we we see with our World Trade Center Network in the Americas that there's a tremendous amount of, of ongoing conversation. And this is really where you see, and I'll come back to you. Work in the southeast, like this is like a people to people, a business to business type of conversation that's that's happening every day and, and maybe to, again to go back to your work here when you were in the southeast as, as a consul general like how how practically then when you are on the grounds how how then do you make that happen all the things that, you, <laughs> that you're talking about sort of uh, i'm not gonna i'm gonna say like what does what a day what, what is it what did the day look like but like can you give like a very concrete example of how you you know, you create those opportunities for businesses. While you were, you know, doing your work as, as a diplomat, working with companies, of course, promoting you work for Canada, but obviously, it has an impact way beyond the, the the U.S.-Canada sort of trade corridor. So, can you share some, I don't know, some anecdotes or examples of of some of the things that you did? Where, you're like, well, this this is how that it works in real life.
1: Well, it's so varied, and but I'll, a few examples come to mind. We, of course, we have a Trade Commissioner Service, and we help business actually uh, grow their export market in the United States, and we tried to attract FDR from the United States into Canada. Really, that's the focus. But in order to achieve that, you sometimes have to, it's not a direct route, you know, you kind of have to (laughs) uh, do a dance to Mm -hmm. get to that, to that. And and so we, you know, some of the things we did, for example, when I was consul general is recognizing that Canadian and American women-led or women-owned SMEs, were more reluctant, uh, more reluctant, in general, to grow into exporting. So they kind of get satisfied with their domestic market, and they play for keeps more. I'm generalizing, but it's it's a proven it's a proven data point. Well, we organized a trilateral Canada, United States, Mexico conference of women in business, and we brought in all the big. All the, not all the big, but many of the big Fortune 500 companies. And we, because they're looking to diversify their supply chain. They want more women, more minority-owned supply chains. That's, many of them have that in their, in their uh, objective. And, and they conduct a training session. as how do you pitch? Right. And how do you promise to you know, be able to scale up your business to take a big contract with Coca-Cola yeah. or UPS or Home Depot? And so that was a very concrete way in which we developed export. But another indirect way was negotiating and and having a reciprocal agreement that when expats from Canada and in Georgia, for example, go back and forth to Quebec and Ontario, that their driver's license could be
0: automatically exchanged. Of course, very practical. Yes.
1: It's practical, but it makes a difference when you're bringing in top CEOs and executives and it just... uh, they don't have to go and take the course and, and spend two weeks trying to get the driver's license. So those are all the little things that we do. And then the big thing is I must have met with elected federal and state level officials probably 10 a week, both, both in state and up in, in Washington. It's important to go see them, talk to them, make sure they don't forget Canada, make sure they're well aware of some of the things they're considering. And legislating on and the
0: impact. Yeah. How, a, how how can one ever forget about Canada? Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Is it
1: the president, the president, President Biden, recently said when he boosted Prime Minister Trudeau, "Oh, Canada, that's the one country I don't have to worry about." But
0: that tells a lot. Right? That's that sums it up, right? That sums it up. But that's that's great. Well, thank you so much. And and so now, now you're out of the service. So what what keeps you busy these days?
1: Well, I'm continuing to do this kind of work. We're, we're, we're um, importing the visit in Canada from, uh, from Curiosity Lab and Peachtree Corners. We're coming to Ontario next week and meeting with, uh, with government officials and, and businesses to establish partnership. And still involved with Savannah. Left my heart in Savannah and so continue to work with CEDA, the World Trade Center there. Uh, there's a lot. that They just announced a wonderful Canadian company CAE is going to expand their operation in, their, in the area with the training center for simulators. So lots to do. There's so much growth still in that relationship. And so uh, I'm happy uh, plugging away at it.
0: That, that, that's great. And I'm, I'm sure you'll continue to be very successful there. So uh, Master Luis Bates, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Uh, very much appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Robin.
0: If you have any ideas for future episodes, know someone who would be an inspiring guest or just want to stay apprised of our show, please make sure to connect with our team via email at at podcast.wtca.org. Be sure to head over to podcast.wtca.org and subscribe to the show. We will see you soon.